All right. Am I on now? Being good? I do feel like I'm a little guy, as this, or, or this pulpit is growing taller. Which one is it? Or is this the same pulpit from last time? Okay, it's just me. All right. It's been too long. It's so good to be with you this morning. I was delighted when and, uh, Rob uh, invited me to come. What a friend Rob has been to me. And uh, I've told him numerous times, I've preached here, I don't know how many times over these 17 years or whatever, 20, I've come. <clears throat> I've never heard one negative word from you, just the opposite, always encouraging positive words, how much you love your pastor and Christy and their family. And I uh, second that, ibid that, highlight that. Uh, Robert and I have taken a few trips together, as he mentioned, and I have poured out my heart to him uh, over various challenges of my life, and he's heard those patiently and prayerfully, and uh, like he said, remain my friend. So this is Pastor Appreciation Month, so brother, I appreciate you. You've been a pastor to me, and I uh, would love you, and thank God uh, for you, and for this church. I often commend this church when folks I know are in the area, they're trying to find somewhere to go to church, it's always, you know, I, I, there's some good options, and I point them, uh, this is one of the churches that I point them to, and I do so without any sense of hesitation. Uh, while I'm thinking about it, let me mention an announcement. I don't have the date, but uh, you guys are very familiar with our annual uh, men's retreat that's coming up in January. Hopefully get an email soon. We uh, have a beautiful place this year up in Clayton, Georgia, Camp Pinnacle. Uh, beautiful mountains uh, and lakes and hiking trails, and I've been there a couple of times myself over the year, a few times myself. You will love Camp Pinnacle, and uh, some of you have already been there, sounds like. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. And if you've not been to Clayton, Georgia in a while, it's changed a lot. It is growing. It's active. A lot of shops and restaurants in the downtown area, they've really done a great job uh, there in Clayton. So that's just south of Dillard, and... Uh, North of Tallulah Falls, kind of give you an idea. Not too much further than our Tacoa trip, a little bit further, but we're going to have a great time and we'll get some, uh, get our heads together about that. I'm going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Rob um, mentioned that I should say a word or two about what I've been up to. And uh, since we last met, I've got some more kids. So <laughs> that's usually the announcement when I come here. Uh, these are not my biological, not from Lori and I. <laughs> These are grandchildren now. So we have six daughters, and now we have three son-in-laws. So we have a, th a third one to be married since the last time I was here, I think. Uh, my uh, second daughter, third marriage uh, in our, well, among our daughters. So Hannah uh, just married Josh Area six months ago. And they have a delightful marriage. They haven't stopped smiling in six months. So uh, <laughs> someone came to me recently. They said, could you, uh, they're about to get married in the community. And they said, could you give us some, uh, some marriage counseling? And I uh, said, so, well, I'll be happy to if I, if I can. Uh, they were not in our church. I said, I'll be happy to help with that if I can. But you should just go talk to Josh and Hannah. They seem really happy for six months. <laughs> uh, I'm happy for 35 years. It's uh, Lori and I have been married 35. Uh, 34 years now. By the way, I am uh, still 50 today. <laughs> and I was delighted to learn that Jamie is older than me. <laughs> well, I just got back from Kansas City. 
uh, yesterday evening, came home to a packed house. Of all of our children were there with all of, uh, all six of my grandchildren belong to Rachel and Adrian. All, they were all there. Uh, my mother-in-law and father-in-law were there. Some neighbors were there. And uh, they were there to uh, celebrate my birthday. So I'm the kind of guy, when I'm off on a trip, I come in, I, I kind of need some space or want some space. <laughs> Uh, but I walked right into a delightful group. I was so It's rare, I don't know how your family is, it's very rare to get everybody together at the same place at the same time. We were still missing one son-in-law who's on marine duty. Uh, but we had most everybody in the same place and same time. Uh, so they knew that the Georgia game was on yesterday and that that had to be built into the, the party. So, so uh, we, we watched that and... They gave me some gifts, and, uh, and then they surprised me with a video, and they had uh, gotten some testimonies uh, from church members and others w uh, wishing me happy birthday, and that was pretty moving uh, to hear, uh, which, you know, I know our folks love us, and I love our church, and it's the, as far as I know, it's the last stop on the, the journey for me as far as pastor, <coughs> excuse me, pastoring. But to hear the children and, and others share their thoughts was meaningful to me at this juncture in my life because at midnight, uh, I will no longer be. Uh, <laughs> actually, midnight, uh, 11.55, I think, tomorrow night. So I really have a little more time before I move into age 60. But one of the things that uh, the, common, the, the predominant theme throughout the video from the children and everyone else in our church was uh, that I have been faithful to preach God's word and not swerve from the path. I was kidding with the group that prayed with me earlier. I said, I haven't been here in a while. I may have swerved into liberal theology since you last met. And one of the guys says, I don't think that would be possible for you. And, and uh, you know, when the person who drifts, a drifter never drifts home. They just drift downstream. And we always need to be praying that we won't drift away from God's word, that we will, and we have to purposely not drift. The culture will gladly sweep us downstream. Uh, evangelical culture will sweep us downstream. We have to constantly, prayerfully and faithfully and purposely not drift. We need prayer. I'm going to talk about prayer in a little bit, and we need the prayers. Our own, we need to be praying. We need the prayers of, of God's people. But back to Kansas City quickly. I forgot about that story. But uh, <laughs> see, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm already struggling. Uh, so I was up there to do research for a new book I'm writing. Uh, and by the way, I brought a few copies of the new book that just came out a few months ago. Yours Still Heaven, The Untold Love Story of Charles and Susanna Spurgeon. So I have some of those, a few of those, if you'd like to get one of those. Uh, the first book, as you know, was Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, and it celebrated its third anniversary a couple of days ago. And we're delighted for that. It's doing really well still, and I think it's in its fourth printing now. And then I'm under contract with uh, Broadman and Holman to write a full biography of Charles Spurgeon, which is to 450 pages, they tell me, to be released in 2024 on the 190th birthday anniversary celebration of, of Spurgeon. Uh, I fell in love with Spurgeon, I think, in 1990 uh, for the first time, and I've been following after him ever since. 
someone said most of our heroes should be dead uh, because they've lived their lives and you're able to see the trajectory of their whole lives, how they've lived and how they died. And, and it's, you know, it's difficult, isn't it, in our present day and time. We, we should have modern heroes, but it's more challenging and we have to be more guarded, I think, at times with that. But our historical heroes, we can see the total picture. And if you've studied folks from church history before, you know that they were all, all the great ones that we consider great, they were all sinners like us. They all were frail children of dust, just as we are, and feeble as frail. And some of them had really, uh, you know, had some episodes in their life that we kind of take a step back and say, wow, you know, that, that's not commendable at all. So I would say this about Charles Spurgeon and his wife, Susanna, that though they were sinners like we are, there's no major uh, blight on their character. One of the only two people I know from Christian history where you can say there's, there was not this really uh, terrible episode or, or sin or something that they did or just as part of their culture they were unaware of. Uh, they were faithful people. And Spurgeon died at 57. So one of the video clips last night from one of our more humorous uh, members of our church, and newest members, I might add, he said, uh, Ray, uh, at least you're older than Spurgeon when he died at age 57. So I think that was supposed to encourage me. <laughs> Living on borrowed time. So Spurgeon did die at age 57. A sickly man, broken down, faithful till the end. His wife lived 11 years after that. And uh, he has been a blessing to me. And it's good. Find someone from history to fall in love with. And not worship them, not idolize them, but learn from them. Don't even try to be them. Uh, but learn from their example. And through them, see Christ. As they followed Christ, you can follow them, just as we can with one another here. So I would appreciate your prayers and that latest endeavor. Our church is so supportive. I've been doing a lot more since 2013. I went back to school again late in life. Uh, I've written the, the two books, and now this is the third book, and it would have been absolutely impossible if our church had not said, yes, we want you to do this, and we want you to, to be gone when necessary to do this and have sent us twice to London and uh, in various places in England and France as well to do research. So I am blessed with a faithful church. I'm so thankful. Love your church. It is a refuge. It is a very uh, sweet blessing from God. I would be lost without our church. I would be drifting out there somewhere on the prairie, <laughs> high plains drifter out there somewhere without our church. I love our church, and I'm thankful for her. Well, First uh, Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to just single out verse 8 this morning. Verse 8. And Paul writes, 
to the church at Ephesus. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Our Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with a beautiful Lord's Day. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with your people. Thank you, Lord, that the local church is your creation. It is your design. It is your command. It is your means of sharing the gospel to the world, of sanctifying your people, of stirring us up to love and good works. Thank you for this church so near to my heart through these years. Thank you, Lord, for the dear friends that uh, are mine now and our families because of the association with this church. And thank you, Lord, for this beloved Pastor Rob and Christy and their sweet family for giving me such friends, such a friend as Rob, who has prayed for me and counseled me and loved me and supported me and encouraged me in a thousand ways. And now, Lord, we come to the Word of God. We have nothing else. We have no one else but You. Lord, would You open our eyes? Would You, would you help us to see something of the beauty of Jesus? Something of the wonder and glory of Your Word? Something of the, the way of life through walking in Your Word? Lord, let Your Word indeed be to us this morning, a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Would you, O Lord, give me clarity of thought and strength of mind and strength of body? Would you give me the unction of the Holy Spirit? Would your Spirit now come and help me to be faithful to preach your word in a way, Lord, that is a blessing to your people, that you would wash us in the water of the word. Lord, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and minister to your people. I pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Faithful congregational prayer, public prayer, which is what is in view here, what is in view in 1 Timothy chapter 2, is the public prayer worship services of the church. When the church comes together to read God's Word, to pray God's Word, to sing God's Word, to preach God's Word, to apply God's Word. That's what is in view here of what happens when the church gathers. Uh, Paul tells Timothy numerous things that the church is up to. And one of the things that uh, the church is to be doing is to read the Word and preach the Word, explain the Word, and apply the Word. Give attention to those things, Paul will later tell Timothy. So how does faithful congregational prayer develop? Where does it come from? How does pray, you know, we think of prayer going to the closet, we think of praying with our families, but the Bible also teaches congregational prayer. How does effective, or where does effective congregational prayer come from? Public prayer, if you will, with all of its dangers, where does the beauty and the glory and faithfulness in public prayer come from? 
Well, it must come from private devotion, right? When we are seeking God faithfully in our closet, repenting of our sins, thanking God for his new mercies, seeking God for help, then that will then affect our public prayer. We want the person that we are on Sunday to be a reflection of the person that God is making Monday through Saturday. We want integrity integrity like that. Now, I'm a big college football fan. Our church is filled with grace in that matter as well because we allow in our, into the membership of our church a few, a handful of non-Georgia Bulldog fans. <laughs> we have a couple of Clemson fans. We have an Alabama family. <clears throat> <laughs> Georgia Tech is represented. few other... Uh, I'm not sure, but I think we used to have a Gator fan, but that resulted in church discipline. <laughs> but isn't it amazing what a college football player can do these days? I mean, it's unbelievable, the sort of feats. I mean, if you watch the Georgia game yesterday, the, the strength, the speed, the size, all that's involved in that. You know, but you know what? Those guys didn't just show up yesterday, you know, roll out of bed and, and uh, you know, sort of an unorganized group that's called together on Saturdays to play football. They were able to play like they played and like they've played all year because of practice, because of what we don't see, right? Because of working out and sweating and, and laboring under very challenging circumstances. And so we see what happens on Saturday, but that's a reflection of what's been going on for years and years and years. You've all seen the, the little uh, picture thing uh, that shows the pastors preaching. You know, what you see on Sunday is the tip of the iceberg and down below the water is the rest of it. And that's uh, his weeks and months and years of study and preparation. And then it peaks out on on Sunday morning. Well, I think our public prayers are like that. They are a reflection of our private devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. If, if our public prayers are going to be Christ-centered and gospel-saturated and God-glorifying, then our private devotion must be like that as well. And God wants both. He wants our hearts in tune with Him privately and publicly. Now in a moment we're going to see the importance of praying with purity, with, with pure hearts, and with peaceful hearts. Two essential elements to prayer. But here I want you to see, just as we're introducing this, the importance of private devotion to our public prayer. The men who lead Congregational prayer are to be certain kinds of men. He says here they're to be pure men, they're to be peaceful men, but we know as well they must be closet men. Men who go to the private place and with tears streaming down their face, they, they do business with God. 
They humble themselves before God. They seek God in prayer. They knock on heaven's door and they keep on knocking. They ask and they keep on asking. They repent and they keep on repenting. They, they claim God's promises and they keep on clinging to God. How many moment, mornings have you uh, been all alone with the Lord and you've had this uh, sometimes perhaps it was the mountaintop experience, other times in the depths of the valley, but God has you there to keep pleading and plotting in prayer. The best times of my day, every day, are the most important times. And when I say best, I don't mean that I'm, I'm always feeling so wonderful and that it always goes fantastically <laughs> when I'm praying. But the most important times of my day are very early in the morning, with an open Bible, a pen in hand, a notebook, and prayer. And I'm typically praying as I'm reading the Scripture. The Scripture is informing my prayer. It is giving me both the fuel and the contents of my prayer. You can learn to pray. You can know what to pray by reading the Scriptures. Read the Psalms. And read the prayers of Paul. Uh, D.A. Carson has a great little book on the prayers of Paul. Study Paul's prayers and learn how to pray for one another. Go to the closet in prayer. Someone has said, what you are in private is who you really are. Not what we see here, but who you are in the closet. Who you are with your family. Who you are on vacation. Who you are in private, that's who you are and nothing else. Robert Murray McShane, a man of great prayer, was ordained to ministry at 23 years of age. He was inducted into the Church of St. Peter's at Dundee. At 30 years old, he died in the spring of 1843. He was a faithful pastor. He was a faithful author, and he was a faithful prayer, if you will. And that's what he said. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. That's why he could also say, I am more acquainted with Jesus Christ than I am with any man in the world. That's a pretty convicting statement, isn't it? Ask yourself that question. Are you more acquainted with Jesus Christ than any other person in the world? More acquainted with Jesus Christ than your closest family member? More acquainted with Jesus Christ than the politician uh, that you like to talk, discuss and the politics that you like to discuss or the entertainer that you like to see perform or the author that you like to read? I told our church recently, uh, using uh, we were going through 1 Timothy, and so I just preached this. And I told our church, I said, if I am better acquainted with Charles Spurgeon than I am with Jesus Christ, that's a problem. That's a problem. Christ must be our all in all. He is the Son. He is the center. And everything else revolves around Him. And all of everything else are the rays that come from Him. But all point back to Him. Christ is all in all. 
Paul writes to Timothy so he will know how the church ought to behave in the household of God. He says in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And he tells us in chapter 2, well, this is how you behave. This is how you order yourself in the church, the family of God. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. McShane said, I rose early to seek God and found him whom my soul loveth. Who would not rise early to meet such company? Who would not rise early to meet the one who loves you with an everlasting love? Who would not rise early to meet the one whose love is unending? whose love is a persevering love, a forbearing love, a patient love, a forgiving love, a sustaining love, a merciful love. Who would not arise early to meet with the one who gave his own life for our sins that we might be right with God, reconciled to God, forgiven of our sins, and counted righteous in Jesus Christ by God's grace through faith. McShane says, King Jesus is a good master. I've had some sweet seasons of communion with the unseen God, which I would not give up for thousands worth of gold and silver. Communion with God. He said, I ought to spend the best hours of the day in communion with God. It is my noblest and my most fruitful employment. Well, again, chapter 2 refers to the gathered church. When the church comes together, he says the first priority is prayer. Why is prayer so important? A praying Christian and a praying church is a church, a Christian, that realizes something fundamentally and vitally important that they need God. A prayerless church and a prayerless Christian is saying by their prayerlessness, I can do this. I've got this. I can make this on my own. And they forget the psalmist's words in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who try. Unless the Lord builds the life, unless the Lord builds the family, unless the Lord builds the church, our labors are in vain. And so when I pray, I'm saying, I need you, God. And don't we feel that? The sands of time indeed are sinking. The world is in chaos. I look in the mirror every day and I see the evidence of the changes that are going on in me. I feel them. I experience them. I know them. I see them in my friends and my extended family. As my fellow elder Kevin, who's preached to you guys before uh, said in his video to me he said we're living aren't we the both of us <laughs> in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 another word of 
Great encouragement. <laughs> From Kevin. It's true though. And we all know, don't we? We see the relationships around us. How many of them are broken? How many homes right now could you just that would just come to your mind and you, there's a broken down home? The husband and wife are are not getting along. They're struggling with their parenting. The children are rebellious. And all, I mean, we could just we could spend the rest of the time talking about that. I mean, how many more reminders do we need to know that we need God? We need Him to be saved. There is no salvation except from God. That's why Paul frequently in the pastoral epistles says that God is the Savior. He's the saving God. In this very text in chapter 2, he says that this is prayer, and the way he describes here is good and acceptable, pleasing to God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. And so at the center of the sort of prayers that Paul is calling for here is the person of Christ and the gospel of Christ. God is a saving God. He has sent His Son to save people from their sins. This is what Paul is in the ministry for, to proclaim this God, to proclaim this gospel, to exalt this Christ. That's what he is to do. And so, as part of the way we are praying here, this indicates to us that we are to be praying for people to be saved. We're we're to be praying for the lost to come to know the Savior that their sins might be forgiven, that they might know the sweetness of communion with God, that they may have the hope of heaven within them, that they might know the sweet, sanctifying grace, the tender mercies of God. We should be praying for the lost. And so, here's some, a few points. We see the plea for prayer in the verse that we're looking at here, verse 8 the plea for prayer. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. So this is gospel-driven prayer. Remember, the gospel is what is center in those first verses there. Christ is center, the work of Christ, God the Savior. And so he's talking about gospel-driven, Christ-centered, God-glorifying prayer that is to be offered up by real men of prayer. I desire. Now the word desire, don't get misled by that. So, you know, I really desire that Georgia would win the national championship this year. I I really kind of hope that happens. And my dear friend David Bailey, who is a Florida Gator, says, well, that last happened in 1980. He he keeps reminding me of that. I hope that happens, but I, I can't make that happen. I don't really know if that's going to happen. That's not the way the word desire is used here. Paul is saying... This as a command. This is what you are to do. This is a first priority. This is your duty to pray. This is his plea. Do your duty. Your delightful duty. I desire that men pray. So Paul has a certain kind of man in view. A certain kind of man that he wants leading congregational prayer. Not a perfect man, but a holy man. A man of prayer. I told the single ladies of our church recently that those who want to get married and 
think that's the direction the Lord's leading them, that first of all, look for a praying man. A praying man. Not a nominal Christian. Not someone who says, oh, I believe in Jesus and I go to church. But look for a praying man and you be a praying woman. That's who you want to marry. A praying man. A praying woman. So, this prayer is centered on the death of Christ, on the sacrifice of Christ, on the gift of, of God. Paul says, this is what you are to do. This is what is to be happening in the church at Ephesus. This is the continual practice of the church. This is not something that we do on occasion. This is what the church is known for. We are indeed a house of prayer. This is a fundamental activity of the church. A fundamental activity of the gathered church. You'll remember that immediately after the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, that the disciples returned to Jerusalem and then they went up to the upper room. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the brother, James the brother of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, they prayed, they chose a replacement for Judas the traitor, and then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell. They were filled with the Spirit. And the first order of business after Jesus ascended was what? Prayer. First order of business was prayer. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches his sermon. People are convicted. They receive the Word of God. They're baptized. The passage says they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Devoted means all in. You know, I'm re I use the McShane Bible reading plan. I don't know what you're using. That's a good one. This is my second year in a row through that plan. Built around the life and ministry and writing of McShane. And so I'm in the Old Testament, and constantly you'll read how God judges His people that when they don't devote to destruction the enemy when they are not when they're half-hearted in their dealing with the enemy and they let some survive they let some things remain the word devotion means all in and so these early christians who had lost so much they would be kicked out of their families they would lose uh, many of them their income they would be in desperate and dire Straits. So the church collectively is going to minister to these poor saints, but at the at front and center of what was happening in that Jerusalem congregation was this, they were all in to the word of God and prayer. All in. Not half-hearted. Devoted. Fully given over to. Chapter 3 of Acts opens with Peter and John going to the temple at the hour of prayer. Chapter 4, Peter and John boldly proclaim Jesus with threat and release. And then they go to their friends and they lift their voices together to God and they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and everything in them. 
And then they go on and they pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In chapter 6 of Acts, they chose deacons so that the apostles, the deacons could serve and the apostles could be set apart in a more devoted way to the ministry of the word and prayer. I mean, just two essential things for the apostles and for the elders who then would follow in their train, the elders and pastors of the church, to give themselves to the word of God and to praying for the church. And so they chose the deacons, set them before the apostles, and they prayed. And we could just walk through Acts and see time and again and again and again how that was a priority of this early church. And we have that, that description throughout the book of Acts. So, so we shouldn't, we're not surprised when we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the development of the church in the book of Acts, and we read the New Testament, we hear throughout Paul's letters how he's praying for the churches, how he's praying for each church specifically, and how he's calling the church to prayer, how he's saying that you know, God in his sovereign glory and wonder has used the prayers of the churches, the church of Philippi is one example, how he used their prayers. He, he was confident that by the Spirit and through the prayers of the people that God was going to deliver him from that imprisonment that he was in, that God was actually going to use the prayers of his people. I don't know how all of that works. How a sovereign God uses our prayers to accomplish his purpose. I just know he does. It's what the scripture says. I don't need to know how it all works. God may, when I get to heaven, maybe he'll let me know more about how all that worked together. I just need to pray and ask God to work. To work. So, we're to pray as a church when we gather. So there should be times, as you have and we have in our services, during the worship service for prayer. For prayer. And he says here, I desire that in every place the men should pray. He doesn't say just the elders. I mean, certainly the elders should pray, can pray, but other godly men can pray as well. So there should be times that are done in the prayers offered in the worship services. And all of us are participating as that is happening. And that's why I would say as well that there should be times set apart in the gathering of the church for prayer and that all of us are to participate when prayers are offered. So Bill prayed a few minutes ago. Rob prayed earlier. What were you doing during that time? You're saying, let's say, if, I get out, if we get out at this time, we can get down to this restaurant before the, <laughs> before the Pentecostals get there, <laughs> before the Methodists get there. It'll be hard to beat the Methodists because you guys, <laughs> they're going to get there earlier. But... Uh, <laughs> what, I mean, what were you doing? How, do you, how can you make... Good use of that time. While the pastor is praying, while 
or Bill was praying, or whoever's praying, what can you do? Good chance to catch up on that sleep, a little nap, short power nap. <laughs> Maybe they'll pray long today. Because <laughs> I can get I need I'm really I really need some sleep today. Now you participate. That doesn't typically mean that you're praying out loud in unison. I was at a church one time years ago, and uh, I was somewhere in Florida, uh, around Cape Canaveral, I think. I was preaching over there, and before the service started, today, thankfully, I'm so thankful the men prayed for me, but at this church, it was unique. They brought me down to the front, right in front of the pulpit. All the men gathered around me, and they all prayed at the same time. They're praying different things, and uh, it was a little bit, uh, you know, maybe it was my, I wasn't very spiritual, but it was a little bit concerning to me, a little nerve-wracking. I didn't know what anybody was praying. I heard a lot of voices. They were all speaking, you know, they were not speaking in tongues. They were actually speaking English, <laughs> but uh, I don't think that's what he's talking about. Uh, well, that's not what I'm talking about when I say we participate in, in prayers. I'm not condemning that church for, I'm thankful they prayed for me. I was in um, Chicago area recently, and I, I did a, I preached for a men's retreat, and I, I preached at their church three times on, on Sunday. And, you know, it was a miracle, really, because they have uh, three services on Sunday morning, and they all have to end at a certain time. And they invited me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my wife and children are, were stunned that I stopped <laughs> on time. You know, it, it's the way it worked. I mean, they had the schedule, and it was, so it's wonderful things can still happen in our day and time, brother. <laughs> Not necessarily this morning. <laughs> but one of the things I appreciated about that church, just like this morning, is before every session at the men's retreat, and before I preached, uh, at, on Sunday and during the services, some men would just pull me aside and they would pray for me. And the Lord gave me great freedom to preach, I believe, in response to those prayers. So you pray. So you're sitting, you're, whoever's leading, agree. If Unless they're have lost their minds or something, you know. <laughs> uh, agree with them. When they're praying biblically, agree with them. In your heart, you don't have to say a word. Yes, Lord, let it be. Oh, Lord, help our church like that. Lord, help me like that. Pray as the men lead in prayer. We pray silently as public prayers are offered. Reminds me of Hannah and 1 Samuel 1. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. And the Lord heard her heart prayers. She was praying. So and beyond the Lord's Day services, or utilize, prioritize prayer every time the church gathers for any reason. If the, the men's group gathers, pray. If the ladies' group gathers, pray. If the, the students gather, 
Pray. If whatever group you have gathered, don't let it be void of prayer. Always read the scripture and pray. I don't care if you're having a lawnmower committee meeting on what kind of lawnmower we're going to use to mow the grass. Read the Bible and pray and ask for God's wisdom on that matter. Pray. Pray. Our deacons at our church, when uh, we pray, they meet with the elders, we, we meet usually for two hours. The first hour we give to praying for everyone in the church. And so we pray for an hour before we ever discuss any deacon's kind of business in the church. And that's what we want in every way. So we want, we, we want that kind of prayer. We want private prayers. Matthew 6 says, when you pray, go to your room, close the door, pray to God, your Father who is unseen, that your Father who, is, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We want family prayer. We want dads and moms praying with the children. One of the beautiful things about uh, Spurgeon's life is that uh, every evening when he was at home and when he wasn't, his wife would, would lead this. But uh, a certain time, it didn't matter who was there. I mean, Queen Victoria could have been in their home and it didn't change this. At the appointed hour, the family gathered and they read the Bible and they prayed and they sang a hymn. This is what they did. Now, Spurgeon also gave an a, a, a exposition of sorts. And everyone, all, they, had, they had household employees, everybody, anybody connected to that house, the employees, the family, the guests, they all gathered and they prayed. And many people testified when they reflected on Spurgeon's life and his mighty and wonderful ministry and his great preaching and all of that. As one said, his, what he, his, the Spurgeon in prayer was the best of all when he sought his Lord. I remember one particular occasion, those of you who know his wife Susie and how sick she was after about 10 years of marriage, she had surgery. She was an invalid for much of the rest of their marriage together. Sometimes she was bedridden. She was often in great pain and suffering. I could travel very little. I couldn't even go to church with him anymore because of the significance of her affliction. And there's uh, one particular story that I recall that uh, you know, someone's at their home, he invites them into the room, and they're going to pray. And, and uh, the, the gentleman describing us, I guess he was peeking, but he said, and Spurgeon uh, went over and put his arm around Susie and began to pray for his wife. When I preached this to our church, I had to say to our church, you know what, I have fallen short of late of, of being the initiator of family worship, of offering more than just a quick prayer for our family, but just gathering our family to pray for them. And I asked my family to forgive me. And uh, This was, I think, right before the Lord's Supper recently at our church. And uh, so often it's been Lori says, could we have, could we, <laughs> could we, and she shouldn't have to do that. That's, thankfully she's godly and she does that. But uh, I've fallen, I've fallen short in that area and stand in need of, of God's grace and tried to immediately that day begin making changes, told our whole church to start asking me if I've been leading in family prayer. Special meeting special prayer meetings. I don't know what you guys do here, but uh, maybe even beyond, if you have like a normal weekly prayer meeting, some seasons of prayer, some times of prayer, uh, when you come together to 
pray. But the point is, prayer is a first-level priority of the church. First level. And so when we pray, this is what happens. We humble ourselves before God, and we come before Almighty God. We are casting ourselves, we're casting our cares, we're casting our needs, we're casting our needs, we're casting our church, we're casting our family onto the shoulders, into, into the arms of the Lord who said, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're crying out to the eternal, all-powerful God. And we're asking Him to come to our aid. And we're hearing the words of Scripture to, to come not shyly, not timidly, but boldly to the throne of grace. We're, we're, we're coming to the one who can actually change us. And it may not be giving us what we're asking for. It may be that he's changing us in some other way that we don't know. You know, I think it's Piper who says, you know, the thing we, we're praying for God to do something and what we see, what we don't see, is the 10,000 other things that God is doing in our lives. And so we pray to the God who loves us who is God our Savior through Christ who died for us by the power of the Spirit who indwells us. And we're saying that our church, Grace Community Church, or New Covenant Bible Church, we need you, God. We need you. The leadership and the direction and the success of our church is not based on the pastor. It's, uh, we all have our responsibilities to carry, but we all must carry them from first having been down on our knees so that we can then rise up in prayer. It's the first level priority. And we pray about everything. At our church, Right now, we have three bathrooms. And two of those are pretty accessible. One of them, you actually have to come walking near the pulpit. <laughs> Most people don't want to do that. And they have to go in the middle of the service. Uh, we're out of space. We rent space. We, we're out of space at our church. Uh, we, we, you know, I don't know what things are like in Canton, but in Dawson County, you just can't go out and, oh, let's go buy something. You know, you've got to have, uh, to buy anything that's, that's going to need an additional million dollars, you've got to have about a million dollars to get started with anything. And then you've got to sink a million dollars into it, usually. That's not really a situation that we're able to, uh, <laughs> to move on. So we, uh, we pray about our bathrooms and about our circumstances. And we ask the Lord to lead us. I mean, everything, right? Not just wishing. I wish somebody, I wish this could, I wish, I wish, I wish. Pray. Pray. I remember uh, another occasion from Spurgeon's life. I mean, they, their church had 66 ministries connected to it. Can you imagine uh, 66 ministries. I mean, they had orphanages. They had uh, widows, 
ministry. They had the pastor's college. They had the, the, the Mrs. Spurgeon's book fund that gave away 200,000 books to poor pastors. They had all sorts of things. And one day Spurgeon, he was a man of action. He told his leaders, he says, you know, we've been blessed as a church. I think the Lord would have us to add some more ministries to this church. And so they prayed about that. Spurgeon was a great admirer of George Mueller, as many of you are. I've often told my family at certain times in our journey, I says, you know, it's Mueller time, meaning it's time to pull out Mueller and read Mueller. <laughs> and so Spurgeon prayed, and then he, uh, he got a letter. No one in the community knew what he and his leaders had prayed for. It was a, a widow lady in town and had said that she was, had been praying and she believed that they needed a Christian uh, orphanage in London. And she had talked to people and said, where should we, who should I talk to? Who can I trust with the money I want to give to this work? And the folks she talked to said, there's really only one, give it to Spurgeon. <laughs> and so just, just days, really, after uh, they prayed for this new ministry, Spurgeon opened a letter and here was the promise of a significant amount of money to get, really, it got the orphanage started. And the Lord provided throughout. So we see the plea for prayer. Secondly, we see the place of prayer. And I'll move a little faster now. The place of prayer. I desire then that in every place the men should pray. What does every place mean? Well, then the church had no building like you guys have. Uh, they typically met in homes. And it may, be, it may have been something to this effect. Well, you know, this Sunday... We're going to meet at, at Joe's home. Next Sunday, we're going to meet at Susie's home. And, the, you know, we're going to meet wherever. The, uh, Bill's barn. And we're going to, all these places, were, they were moving around, perhaps. So whatever place you meet, I desire that in every place, the, the men should pray. So wherever the church gathers, it doesn't have to be this building. It could be somewhere else. And they didn't have a building. Everywhere you gather, pray. Third thing we see is the people who pray. I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Again, now remember we're talking about congregational prayer. This sounds controversial to modern ears, but the people who pray when the church meets for worship are the men, that is the men lead out in public prayer. And the word for men here is very distinct. A lot more distinct than our culture that doesn't seem to understand who a man is or who a woman is, this is a, the word that can only be used of a male, a biological male, a man. So it's the word man. Not mankind in general, but man very specifically. Very specifically. So the distinction is that men should pray. Not necessarily only Timothy and not just the elders, but any godly man should pray, or can pray, or allowed to pray in the church. So who's leading the way here? Men. Men. Ladies, what can you do about that? Pray for these men. That God would help them in that calling. Well, next we see the posture of prayer. 
I desire then that in every place the, the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So here, Paul deals with the kind of man who can pray. He doesn't want just any guy praying during the service. He wants a certain kind of man praying. Now, what does he want? He wants a certain kind of posture. So wait a minute now. You're, are you saying that what Paul is teaching here is the, the only kind of man that can pray is the one who's willing to lift up his hands like that? That's not what he's saying. Uh, the hands refer to a certain kind of life. Now certainly the posture of lifting up one's hands, that's fine. That's, that's used in the Old Testament. That's used in the New Testament as a posture of prayer. There are lots of other postures of prayer as well. So he's not commanding a particular posture. He's certainly not discounting that as a posture. But what he really wants is a certain kind of man. What kind of man? He wants a holy man, the hands indicating his life, a holy man leading out in prayer. It's not a physical posture that he's focused on here. But the adjective is what's important. Holy hands. This is one who is pursuing holiness. So if you are a Christian, this means a couple of things. It means that, well, it means many things, but it means that if you are a believer, that by God's grace, through faith, you have been saved. Your, your sins have been forgiven. You are counted because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You are counted righteous in God. You are no longer God's enemy. You are God's friend. You are set apart. You are, once a person, young or old, comes to Christ, they are called a saint. Okay? So, uh, a saint that's never going to get a statue made after them. Okay? A statue that no one's going to probably ever make a pilgrimage to go and see. But a holy one. That's what saint means. A holy one. Set apart. So every Christian is a holy one. Positionally, in Christ, our holiness is in Christ. We didn't bring any holiness to God. Say, so, okay, God, I'm holy. Am I holy enough to sort of weigh the scales in my favor so that you accept me? No, our holiness is in the righteousness, the holiness of Christ. That's where our holiness lies. We are positionally in Christ. Now, then what happens after that? That begins a journey. We call it progressive sanctification. We start growing in the faith. The word, prayer, church, pain, the trying of your faith. God starts enabling us to, to work out our own salvation, to work out what He's put in. He saved us. Now, work it out. Like a miter in the mountains, dig out the gold of the gospel that God has deposited in you in a life that is purposely set on holiness and purity. So we are to be holy as He is holy. We are positionally holy. Now we're to live with practical holiness, purity of life. So the, the, the next section in, in 1 Timothy 2 has to do with women in the church. And a lot of times, guys, I've heard many preachers do this as well, they put the burden of purity, a man's purity on the back of the woman. That's not what Paul's doing. He starts with the men. He doesn't say men be pure 
if women dress modestly. That's what's coming up next, modesty. He doesn't say men be pure. We know you can't be pure because women aren't dressing modestly. He says lift up pure hands. Lift up a, a pure life, a holy life, a life committed to a life of holiness, a walk of holiness. So regardless of what the ladies are doing, they have responsibilities, but you are responsible to walk in holiness before God. Now, what our churches need today are men who are pursuing practical purity. It is a battle. It is a war. And men are falling every week. Just a few days ago, a dear friend of mine, someone I never would have imagined, fell into this kind of sin. And he has lost uh, so much. He's lost so much. I remember the first time I met him, I saw the promise. I saw his, his knowledge of Scripture and his knowledge of things. And he went on and to excel in numerous ways. And, but still a very humble man. And uh, now he has uh, resigned his church and selling his books, selling his house. Thankfully, his wife is staying with him and they're going to try to see what they can do with this mess. Nothing will ever be quite the same. The gospel is the power of God, right? And to salvation and we pray for him. But it's a shame. It's, a, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's been difficult to process to see another brother fall into sin through smaller compromises that led to the, the crossing the line. We need, men, we need men who are serious about holiness of life, about prayer and Bible reading and meditation and memorization, serious about bringing up their family in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But I'm talking about more than those things. I'm talking about the private life, pursuing personal purity not twiddling hours away looking at pornography. And not looking at it because, not, not first of all because the Bible says fornicators and adulterers and liars go to hell, but not looking at it because they see the beauty of Jesus and the love of God. And they're able to see what a cheap counterfeit immorality and heart impurity is. We should be praying for holy men pursuing a holy life to lift up holy hands to God. Not perfect men. Not sinless men but men who are humble and repentant and confessing and seeking hard after God. I don't have time to, to do what I wanted to do here, but I'm just going to give it to you. Colossians chapter 3. This seek, you know, seek your things above, set your heart on things above, not on the things of the earth. Then he says to sever sin. And the first list he starts with are sins of impurity. Sever means to kill, put to death, mortify. 
as Edwards, as uh, Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so sin has, has killed my friend and it has brought destruction and death everywhere. Sin is not your friend. Or Thomas Watson, who for a cup of pleasure will drink a sea of wrath. Sexual immorality is no doubt a, a sin of pleasure. Excitement. Temporary. Good feelings. But oh, the pain. Oh, the destructiveness. Oh, the death. Lift up holy hands. Purity. And then we've got to finish. Peacefulness. Should lift up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So, I mean, we're talking about men in the public worship service here, but this is applicable for all of us, men and ladies, right? I mean, this is what we want. We want pure, a pure life. We want a peaceful life, a life that reflects the fact that we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ, that we are ministers of reconciliation. We're calling enemies to, to, to be friends with God by God's grace. And we're coming into relationships among Christians at times where they're just going after each other. and We're, we're bringing the, the gospel of peace in those situations. So without unholy fire, without unholy fire for immorality, without unholy fire of anger, Someone told me something just a few years ago. I mean, they were just quoting the scripture, but the way they said it to me in that particular day, and I was, I was so angry about something. And this dear brother said, always remember, the unrighteous anger of man never works the righteousness of God. Even though what you're angry about, when, you, when that anger turns to sinful anger, even if you're really angry about something that's really, really bad, and it's, but it's, it's, it's messing up the way you think about people and the Lord and whatever, it's not going to bring about the result you want. It's not. And so, the praying man must be a pure man, must be a, a peaceful man. Lift up holy hands from a peaceful Life. Well, I love your church. I know you're a praying church. You have praying men. We can all do better. I, I love my church. We can do better here. It's so easy just to start, you know, go through the motions and, you know, you, oh yeah, this is what we do on Sunday. We come in, we go out, we go do our thing, come back. And, and without being purposeful, in the priorities. What is God passionate about with His church? He wants His church praying. For it is through the prayers of His people that He receives positive glory. The church receives positive good. And the gospel advances so that the centerpiece of Paul's prayer here, the ransom of Jesus Christ for sinners, is proclaimed then to the world through praying people. Pray for one another. Spurgeon says, let me know the day when, you're, when you give up praying for me, for then I must give up preaching. 
He said, prayer has become as essential to me as the heaving of my lungs and the beating of my pulse. Spurgeon's prayers, one friend said, made you feel the throbbing of that mighty heart. John D. Rockefeller from America once, once visited Charles Spurgeon with the Baptist theologian Augustus Strong. He spent two hours with Spurgeon. And the wealthy tycoon uncovered what he thought was the secret of Spurgeon's ministry. He simply said this, he seemed to be a man of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the glorious gospel. We do need you, Lord. Forgive us when we have foolishly lived as if we don't need you. Help us, Lord. We are weak. We are sinful. We are frail. We are not strong. You are not weak. You are not sinful. You are not frail. You never need sleep. You are the eternal God of the ages and you love us. Please help us, O oh Lord, to learn to pray and to pray fervently for your glory and the eternal good of others. In Jesus' name.